We're going to be in James chapter 4, really right in the middle of it. We'll have two more sermons left in James chapter 4 today. We'll, we'll cover the middle section, and next week we'll cover the end. Last week, Kirk uh, did an amazing job with about 48 hours of notice because uh, I wasn't feeling well. As many of you and many of people in the world have not been feeling well lately, so um, I wasn't able to be here, but Kirk, I thought, did such a great job introducing a new way for the book of James to just give us this challenge, and it was all about how to pursue humility. So for the last couple weeks leading up to that, we talked about wisdom. Now we're going to talk about humility, and we're going to do it again today. And so I really just want to read one verse to you this morning, and then we'll spend the, the rest of our time in the Word trying to understand how this verse can be alive in our lives. Uh, James chapter 4, verse 10, this is the verse uh, of the hour. This is one of those moments in Scripture where they will give you a, uh, a, a promise that if you live by, it could become a life verse. It could become your bedrock of following Jesus. It says in verse 10, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Now, this can be read very quickly. It can be something that can be categorized very quickly as a Christianism that maybe you have heard from time hanging around church or just time reading the Bible. Humble yourself, and God will lift you up. But before we go any further, I have to slow down for this verse and say, this is the key to everything. If you get this one right, you will follow Jesus and you will understand the provisions that God has for your life in a way that will lead to joy and satisfaction and life more abundant. This is the verse. You miss this one and everything else that follows is what James would call useless religion. This is the verse that shifts what Kirk talked about last week, warring and fighting and arguing with one another, back towards the presence of God where he would lift you up beyond the fighting and the warring. This is the verse that would point you towards wisdom, that would lift you up when you have times of confusion. And this is a verse for believers to cling to, but it's also an answer for anyone who maybe is outside the category of believer this morning because this concept is really what everyone's after in life to be somehow lifted up. You think about even the, the way we use language when you, when you do your life planning or your goals or your vision for who you see in the mirror, and there is a desire for your life to somehow be elevated. We say it in secular ways when you talk about the career path, and it's like I'm working the ladder. I'm getting, I'm getting up. You talk about it in your heart, in your spirit. When you think about just the, the, the mood that you're in, you're in high spirits or you're down and you're low. And there's something about what we find in just our pursuit of God that is continually trying to bring our hearts and our minds and our lives to a closer position to him, which is lifted up. It's in you. You want to be lifted up. And outside of God, there is this groaning and there's this wanting of how a life can be elevated. And there's all sorts of ideas. And one of the ways that we're going to look at the answer, that humility is the answer for the believer. It's the paradoxical answer that you find all throughout scriptures for the answers of your life. You really want to be elevated. It is not by making more money and elevating your status. It's not by just advancing in your career and elevating your position. It's not by elevating your friend group, elevating your educational goals. The paradox answer today is that you find in the presence of God, a lowness, a, a humbling of who God is in light of who you are. And God does what you'll never be able to do, which is to take you to places in your life, in your heart, in your mind, in his plan for your life, by his design, that would bring you to life and life more abundant. This is the key. This is the key to life, is learning how to humble ourselves before God, that he would then lift up our lives. And the question is, why are we so challenged by this? Why is it that we look to so many other things to be that thing that lifts us up? We're going to look at the answer today in really two parts. Because as you study the book of James, it can really, you can almost read it as a modern-day book of Proverbs or a New Testament book of Proverbs with a collection of just wise sayings. 
But the more we spend time in it, the more you realize that so much of this is connected. And what James is about to do for the rest of the, uh, chapter 4 is essentially say, if you really want humility, this is how you get it. You get it, and this will be the, the, the topic of our sermon today. Practicing humility is the title of the sermon. This is how you actually practice it. This is how humility goes from a sermon that you hear, a verse that you read, a, a promise that you memorize, and it goes into your life. You practice humility, and James will give us, as, as he has done throughout this letter, he will give us two surprising ways that we find it. First, which we'll look at today, is that we actually find humility in our relationship to each other. Not, the, not our favorite answer. Don't we wish humility was just something that we could theologically kind of cultivate in our hearts and our minds, and before God and God alone, we're humble, and everything else, we just kind of do what we want. But James says, if you really want to know humility, we have to have a discussion about how you treat one another. So part one of the rest of the chapter will be practicing humility by learning to be humble with people. And because I was eager to get back into preaching, I thought I'd do the whole rest of the chapter. So I already know where we're going next week, which is an amazing passage of Scripture. If you are in that January season of your life that's thinking about where you are, where you want to be, the plan for the rest of the year as you're mapping out your life, come next week because we're going to talk about practicing humility by the way that we can be humble with plans. That will be all next week is that James will say, who are you to make all of these plans and you have no idea what tomorrow will bring? So next week we'll talk all about plans. Today we talk about humility through the power of relationships with each other. This is how we will know in the sight of the Lord, be humble in God's sight. This is how we actually practice it. Not simply in our prayer closet. Not simply by studying the Bible. But in God's sight, he looks at our humble hearts as we relate to one another. How are we doing when it comes to humility, not just before the creator of the universe, but humility with the person you're sitting next to today? Humility with the person that you're driving next to on the way to Costco after church. Humility with the people that God has placed you next to in your neighborhood, in your workplace. This is humility in the sight of God. So today we look at practicing humility by relationship or being humble with people. And here's why we can find this shift that James says the key is to, to being lifted up is humility. And then he'll say this in verse 11. So do not speak of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy who are you to judge another? This is James reintroducing a theme that he's really been helping us understand throughout our study, which is that our words matter, and the way that we speak about each other matters more than we realize. Uh, the, the theme was first introduced in James chapter 3, or really given us this dichotomy of how we talk about God and people, when he says in James chapter 3, verse 9, with our tongue, we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men. We've been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, this should not be so. So the idea being that this morning we were led into the worship of the praise of God, amazing songs, and we sang. And we, we lifted up our voices to proclaim the goodness of God. He's working even when you don't see it. I just love this concept. We proclaim his goodness beyond our understanding. And the challenge now this morning is you have blessed God. What are you going to do with God's people? What are you going to do with all the people that sit around you that are made in the image of God, that have also come to bless God, that are working through their challenges of lack of wisdom and lack of humility and lack of sanctification? The, the question that James is asking is, how can you bless God and curse his creation, your neighbor? These things should not be so. And in the pursuit of humility, James is going to say, now let's talk about this again. And so maybe you were here for the sermon that we preached, all about the tongue. We kicked off the new year. It's like, you want a real resolution? Watch your mouth and watch your words. And you're thinking, I already got that sermon. We did it two weeks ago. Are you sure? Are you sure you got it? Uh, let me use myself as an example. 
even without really thinking through the map of the sermon that laid before us, or the book of James, the day after we preached the message in James chapter 3, that said, you, you, you bless God and you curse men, the day after. And, and by the way, I just, I just uh, um, indicted all of you as blessing God this morning. Look at myself. Not only am I blessing God with song, I'm opening the word. I'm proclaiming it. Who is wise among us? Careful if you're a teacher. That day after I preached James chapter 3, I went home and had one of the best fights that my wife and I have ever gotten into, and it was all word salad. It was all just back and forth. It was so good, in fact, that I had a soccer game Monday night, and I just, just ran right through it. I said, I don't care. We're not going anywhere until I got all of these horrible words into your ears. And the next day, I saw a, a brother who comes to church, and he says, where were you at the game? And I was like, I was re-preaching re my sermon <laughs> to myself. I absolutely lost control of my tongue. And the reality is, in two weeks' time, without knowing the details of all of the ways that God is working out the, the language of your mouth, you have failed in humility at some point just in the way that you speak about people. We want to be lifted up by God. We want to experience the blessing and the provision of God, and we want to do it on our terms with him and have no relation to the people next to us. And so James is going to say, if you want to be lifted in humility, we have to be careful about how we speak to one another. And so he's going to break this down for us. As he says, brethren, don't speak evil. Now he's going to give us essentially three wise sayings, just in the two verses that we read. And for the purposes of my study, so I share it with you, I found these to be helpful in the form of Proverbs. You hear a lot about the book of James as the New Testament proverb. Uh, these are read, and these are almost written as though you're reading Proverbs. So we'll share three Proverbs from James this morning, and each one of the, them will give us a reason to be humbled against our pride in relation to one another. So read again in verse 11 with me. Here's the first proverb of James. He says this, He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. Now, I, I appreciate it in the proverb format because the more you study the book of James, the more you realize you will never understand all of the wise sayings that it has just by listening to a sermon. This is a book that requires the meditation that you would give the Proverbs. The Proverbs, it says, almost written as riddles, enigmas, for us to crack the codes of life as we meditate and understand the Proverbs of God. And so it is with James. This is a, this is a tricky saying to really understand. He says, he who speaks evil of a brother judges his brother, and speaks evil of the law and judges the law. So let's break this first proverb down. First of all, the condemnation of speaking evil. Speaking evil, turning into judgment. So every time you speak on judgment, what Jesus says we shouldn't judge one another, James is overlapping the Sermon on the Mount and saying, careful is the way you judge people. I also want to qualify by saying, it doesn't mean we're not to discern areas of admonition and exhortation and ways that we can be sharpening one another. This isn't to say never look at anyone and try to offer them the wise counsel and wisdom of the word as God gives you the grace to do that. This is evil judgment. So he says when you speak evil of people, here's how one commentator says it. He says, this is not to rule out civil courts and judges. It is instead to root out the harsh, unkind, critical spirit that continually finds fault with others. This is the judgment that is not looking to build each other up by the way of the word, but is looking to continually find ways that people are wrong, that other people are evil, that you can use your good judgment against people to somehow lose your witness of humility. There is a humility that you use as you look out and judge evilly against other people, judge with evil intention. Uh, and this is a challenge and a temptation because you all have so many good reasons to judge others. Jesus says there's specks, there's a, you can get the speck out of other people's eyes. The reality is, is when you look around the church, the brethren that James is speaking of, when you look around your neighborhoods, when you think about your immediate family, when you even think about the people that you love and care about the most, 
because people are fallen and still growing and in areas of your life that you've matured in, judging people is not very hard to do. Here's a quote from one theologian, not really a theologian, um, but a philosopher of our time. His name was George Carlin. He passed away. And he said this, think of how stupid the average person is and realize half of them are stupider than that. That is the baseline for our judgments. If you really want to elevate yourself by judging others, look around and it won't take you long. In fact, there is a version of that that you can see all over the world. There is a self-righteous judgment that happens by pointing out, continually looking for the faults that are easy to find in others, hoping that as you point out others' faults, you somehow will be lifted up. Judgment is an alternative method to being lifted up. You can judge others to lift people up. That's not what we're calling to do today. Today we say humility is the answer. But James says, but careful because some people will think judgment is the answer. There's a Christian version of the George Carlin quote that maybe you've seen in a bumper sticker. It says, I've got nothing against God. It's his fan club that I can't stand. You see it around, and, and you look out at that, and you almost sympathize with the person who says, okay, I respect God. I like Jesus as a good moral teacher. I understand that there are some good principles that, and values that come from the basic tenets of religion. My problem is the fanatics that follow the Christ. And sometimes you hear that sentiment, and you think, I can't argue with you. You're kind of right. Uh, the problem is the people. The problem is not the God who created all things good. The problem is the people who make things that are good evil. And sometimes we read that bumper sticker, we feel that sentiment, and we get sucked into the same idea. I love God. I don't know how I feel about church nowadays. I really love Jesus, but I'm telling you, there are some really weird Jesus followers out there. And, man, if, if only we could get him into Calvary Chapel, Boise, everything would be settled. But we can't. And we look out and we think, man, their theology's crazy. Their politics are crazy. The way that they do church is weird. And I don't really love the fan club. Now, the problem with that is we're all part of the fan club. And when you start talking about the church in third person, you've lost the plot. You are the church. If you don't like the direction of the kingdom of God rise up as a light in the darkness and be part of what God wants to do to get his bride ready for his return. But when we start thinking that we're the good guys and those ones over there are the fan club, we've started to lose the humility that comes in the radical realization that is the presence of God that brings us to our knees and it's the presence of people that elevates us above our measure. And this is what James is going to warn us against. And every one of these parables or these proverbs that we'll look at today, the three wise sayings that James is offering us, can coincide very easily with a parable of Jesus, which I find helpful. Because the proverbs take meditation and they take the, the spirit to unlock wisdom, and the parables tell stories for ideas that are, that are too big for our minds. They break them down into a story. So here's one of them. Here's a, a way that Jesus will explain the problem of self-righteous lifting up. And he does it in Luke chapter 18. He says in Luke chapter 18, he spoke a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Now, that introduction by the gospel writer Luke is describing a, a scene that Jesus is speaking to that James is warning his readers against. Jesus is, is about to share a story because some people thought they were righteous of themselves and they got there by despising others. This is the, the challenge of the tribe. This is the difficulty of being part of a little collection of people that were tempted to say, yes, we're humble in our tribe, but especially because the other tribe's off. And Jesus says, here's how the story goes. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So here's the scene. You've got two people that are seeking God. As James says, you really want to understand humility. It starts with the pursuit of God. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. But there are two men that represent the two responses to seeking God. The first, we have a Pharisee. 
Uh, the Pharisees, in, in some ways, were to be too admired for their zeal for God. They loved the law. They wanted to live it out perfectly. And, and in some ways, their zeal was good, but it was misguided because the law was not meant to save. So to really live out the law perfectly, the only way you can do that was by elevating yourself against someone else. And this is what he did. We have a tax collector. The Pharisee who wants to live out the law, the tax collectors who's just here to do business. And Jesus says, watch what happens when these two people both try to draw near to God. First, the Pharisee. He stood up and prayed within himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. This is not a heart of gratitude. This is, grat this is evil thoughts disguised as thankfulness. I'm so glad that we're here this morning and we're not out sinning. I'm so glad that we're here at our church and not at a different church that's crazy and weird. We're so glad that what we have is right and we're not like those people that are wrong in all of our ideas. He says, because this other guy, I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. And now we have a lifting up that does not come through humility. And yet it's a great temptation for all of us. There is a temptation to be lifted up, to be elevated, not by God, but by placing ourselves above people. This is where your evil speaking comes from. This is where tribalism takes root and, and grows into wildfire. When the lifting up comes from saying, I'm not like them, look what I can do. I fast twice a week. I give tithes, tithes of all that I possess. The, the things that he describes of his own life are good things. They're, they're God-ordained. So to give what God gives to you, we just prayed that we would have done that with a right heart. To, to fast and to seek God and to draw near are good things, but they are disguised oftentimes as better things than the next guy. You are here this morning as a good pursuit. I, I, I pray that I'm here to draw near to God and not to elevate myself in a position and I hope the same for you. I hope that you are here to draw near to God and not to do better than the next door neighbor. Because Jesus has a warning for us in the way that we desire humility but often find the lifting up through pride. C.S. Lewis is someone that pastors probably quote too often. But in Mere Christianity has a section about self-righteousness. And he draws out something that was true when he wrote the book. It was true when Jesus was sharing parables. And it's true now that oftentimes our growth in the Lord can turn into a competition against our brothers. Look what he says in, in Mere Christianity. One of the marks of a certain type of bad man is that he cannot give up a thing himself without wanting everyone else to give it up. That is not the Christian way. An individual Christian may see it fit to give up all sorts of things for special reasons, reasons, marriage or meat or beer or the cinema. But the moment he starts looking down his nose at other people who do use them, he has taken the wrong turn. The pursuit of God and drawing near to God in humility will require you to lay everything at the cross. And your everything is different than your brother's everything. And what you lay at the cross to crucify your flesh is going to look different for the next person dying to themselves. Years ago, Clark Petticord, who is teaching the Gospel of John on Monday and is also one of our missionaries that we'll pray for from time to time, shared a story with me in this regard because he lived in Germany and he has his own version of self-righteousness that looks very different than what we have in America. He said there were, some, there were some German believers years ago that had gotten together and they were praying for the believers in America and uh, they were just heartbroken because they had gotten word that believers in America will watch rated R movies and they go to the cinema and they'll watch violence and they'll watch scenes that should not be entering into the minds of people who are purifying their hearts and their minds. And they were so heartbroken for the state of the American church that they started to cry and their tears dripped right into their big giant mugs of beer. <laughs> and that is the picture of self-righteousness as you look, oh, look at what they're doing. And us Americans, we look at the Germans and we're like, they are drinking. <laughs> they should probably pour out their beer and go to the movies. 
humility before God is so in awe of the presence of God that he lifts you up into a faith that he is sovereign over his people. And he does not need the church to police the church. It says the Holy Spirit comes to bring conviction. And in our humility, we begin to trust that God is actually a good judge of his church. And now we come to the version of the story that Jesus wants to call in a scandalous way anyone who feels afar off or feels less than religious or feels like the opposite of self-righteous pride. He says, now look at the tax collector. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And then what does James say? So as you approach God, get ready to lament. Get ready to mourn. Get ready to pour out your heart for your need, for the grace of God to pour through your heart. And that is how you know you're drawing near to God and not drawing near to religion. That when you cry out for mercy and for grace and for the love of God to change your life because you are so in awe of the presence of God that you're not even looking at your neighbor. Spurgeon says, the nearer a man lives to God, the more intensely he has to mourn over his own evil heart. Have mercy on me. This is practicing humility. The presence of God is a humbling experience. The gospel should bring all of us to a place of humility that we sinners could receive mercy. And now Jesus gives us the story that James is calling us to. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. In the words of James, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up, and be careful of exalting yourself through religion and not the hand of God. Parable number one. And parable number one, or proverb number one, proverb number one is going to lead us into the second question that as you meditate on this passage of the book of James, you should be wrestling with. So we go back to the first one. It says this, he who speaks evil against a brother judges the brother. And here's a tricky riddle. Speaking evil against the brother, you judge the brother and you speak evil of the law and judge the law. This is now the second, brings us to the second parable, or proverb number two. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. How about that? So we've used the, the lower state and the condition of a sinner to our left to try to elevate ourselves. We've spoken evil and we've judged our brother. Now James says you do that and you're also judging the law. Now think about this proverb. If you judge the law, you're no longer doing it. You're just a judge. You're not executing the reality of what the, call, the, the law calls you to. So again, this is a proverb. This is something for us to meditate and think about. How is it that when we judge our brothers, we're actually judging the law? Well, we use the book of James to teach the book of James again. So we go back to where James explains to the New Testament believers in Christ, church-going people, that there is a new law. It's not the Torah. We're not simply talking about the pharisaical adherence to the law that came down to 600 plus different additions to it. The royal law in James chapter 2 says this, if you really fulfill the royal law according to scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, then you do well. So loving your neighbor is the law. Of course, that is an extension of total devotion and love of God. But we can't forget why James brings up the law in the first place. As we were studying chapter 2, it was all framed in the same concept of judging others. And that's why he goes on to say that the law is good. If you do it, if you love your neighbor, it's good. But, James chapter 2, verse 9, if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. If you take the royal law of love, to love God and love your neighbor, 
And all of a sudden, you have found someone that you're not so sure about. You have found a tax collector. You have found your version of the person you're so glad that you're not. You have found the opposite tribe. You have found the people that are bad and the real problem to the state of the world, the state of the country, and the state of the church. When you find them and you say, loving your neighbor doesn't apply, you have now just judged where the law goes. You're using the law not as God uses it, but you're using the law to discriminate against those that you think the law is for and isn't. And unfortunately, this is also part of the human condition. This is one of the reasons that the law exploded in size as they studied it, because there were always exceptions to be made for what the law really was and what the law really wasn't. And from the beginning, the law was continually studied and judged as a way to try to work around it. That's why in Genesis, you have one law. You have the only law. Don't eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't do that. I mean, everything else is fine. And it's like, well, what did God really mean by that? It's like, okay, uh, let's, let's qualify this. Here's 10 laws. Don't do these 10 commandments. It's like, okay, we got 10 now. Well, what did God really mean by those 10? And so the law grows to make exceptions for all the questions, for the ways that you can judge the law and say, is it really applied here? Is it applied there? And so the Torah grows to 600 additional laws and commandments to qualify the law and the commandments. And I've shared this before, and the example that we find in the, in the wild, in the, in the real world that we live in, is anytime you fly, the flight attendant will get on the, the loudspeaker and say, please do not smoke on the airplane. Because there was a law that was implemented that said no smoking. And then they said, well, you've, you've, you've figured out a way to smoke in the bathroom. Maybe that's technically not the airplane cabin, so now people are smoking. So then they put in a smoke detector. And then the law was, please don't smoke and please stop messing with our smoke detectors. <laughs> and then the law was, stop disabling the smoke detector. And then the law was, and you can't do your e-cigarettes either, and no vaping. And whatever the next law is down the line, there is a way to say, I'm judging what this is really getting at. And that didn't go away when the New Testament writers realized that all of the law, as Jesus stated, was really summed up in loving God and loving people. Because you have stories where people are saying, what does that really mean? So as Jesus uh, is approached, another moment in the, the story of Jesus to enhance the teachings of James in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, you have a lawyer. Different than our lawyers now where it's not necessarily litigation in courts. It's what's the law getting at? It's like the study of the law. I want to know it. I want to judge it. And the lawyer says to Jesus, how do I get life? And he says, well, you're a lawyer. What does the law say? To which he rightfully says, as James would come behind him and say, correct, the lawyer answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is like, you did it. You studied the law, and you got the right answer. And if I asked you this morning, what is the Christian royal law? You'd be like, it's simple. You love God, and you love your neighbor as yourself. But then there would be this part of you that existed 2,000 years ago that would come up at some point in your neighborly pursuit that asked the follow-up question. Luke chapter 10, verse 29. But he, wanting to justify himself, answered and said, but who is my neighbor? Because <laughs> it's not, I mean, are we talking like three or four or five houses down? Are we talking like proximity in the circle here? Like, how much love do you really want me to have, Jesus? To which Jesus tells a parable that you've probably heard. At least you've heard it referenced because it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's worth bringing up now because the whole point of the parable is to get to the end of the story. Where he says to the lawyer, who did it? You judge it, you study it, you think about it, you ask questions. But when a man was robbed and left in a ditch to die, the priest went around him. And the Levite, another religious figure, went around him. And then there was a guy that had no affiliation to your amazing Torah. He was a Samaritan, and he helped him. Who's the neighbor? Who helped him? And what was the answer? 
We read it in verse 36. So which of these three men do you think the neighbor was to him who fell among thieves? And he said, it was the one who showed mercy to him. And then Jesus said this, go and do likewise. Go and do it then. If you want to live out the law, you have to stop trying to look for the boundaries of the law. You, stop, you have to stop trying to figure out where the law isn't, where, where love can stop, where you no longer have to walk in the wisdom of God. Is this outside that category? Because this seems pretty clear it's a good business deal. Are we sure we have to love this person? Because it's pretty clear they're not my neighbor. They're like way over there. <laughs> then go do it. And this is where the riddle of the proverb that James gives us this morning starts to open up. Because he says, if all you do is judge the law, you're not doing it. It's a theme throughout James. You guys listen, and the Lord tells you, and then you don't do it. You guys read the word, and you understand it, and then you're like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and forgets what it is. And the royal law of love, here it is, and you study it to the extent that you have found every boundary so that all you're really doing is love the people you already wanted to love. You're being kind to the people that you already wanted to be kind for because in your judgment, you have created the perfect boundary so that your execution of the law is according to you and not according to the royal heart of God, the one who shows mercy to the one in need. This is the true neighbor. And we think about all of the categories of our Modern church laws. It's like, man, I, I've got a lot of problems with church. And I'm going to judge what it should be and what it shouldn't be. And it's like you spend so much time deconstructing your church experience that you're not being the church. I'm going to think about theology and really understand eschatology and ecclesiology and church government, and you've spent so much time thinking about it that you don't actually live it. You're not preparing yourself for the coming of the Christ. You're not being the hands and feet of Jesus regardless of the church government that God has placed you in. Judging the law and not doing the law. The first parable we looked at was the parable of two sinners. There was a prideful sinner, and there was a humble sinner. In this regard, we'll look at a parable of two servants. Because this question isn't just, who should I love? It's the execution of every spirit-led reaction to the people of your life according to what Jesus would do. And we see another version of the question in the Apostle Peter. He stands up at some point. And he's trying to understand the extent of the call. He says in Matthew chapter 18, Peter came to the Lord and said, How often shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. Show me the boundary. Show me how far. And Lord, by the way, I'm willing to go up to seven because this is a good deal. I take it now or otherwise I go back down to six. <laughs> In your heart, Lord, forgive them. How many times? Don't you understand what they've put me through, what I have been challenged by? The forgiveness of God is greater than the forgiveness of man. The mercy of God is infinitely larger than the mercy that you have a capacity for. And at some point, you're going to have to step beyond your own strength into the power of God. And this is called humility. This is humility, is to go beyond your forgiveness boundaries and your kindness boundaries and your I'm going to hope for you boundaries and your I'm never going to stop praying for you boundaries and your I, I believe God can redeem you boundaries. Because you stay within your strength and you are not humbling yourself, but you go beyond what you would do into the heart of God, which the last time I checked was that he died for the whole world. Where sin abounds, grace abounds more. And Jesus replies to Peter, not seven, but 70 times seven. In other words, I don't want you to count that high. And then he tells a parable. Because <laughs> don't we just need the story? 
And I won't share every detail of the story that Jesus shares, but I'll share the end with you because he says, you want to understand this concept? There are two servants. There was a master who went to settle his debts with one of his servants, and he owed more than he could ever pay. Let's call it $10 million for the sake of our sanctuary. The man said, I don't have it. How often should he forgive? The master forgives him all of his debts. And as the story goes, the servant then goes find someone that owes him money. And for the purposes of our sanctuary, let's call it $100. In our economy, that's a forgivable debt. And he strangles the man, and he threatens the man, and he says, give me what you owe me or else. And this is the danger of becoming a judge of the law and not a doer. Because in his judgment, he judges himself favorably and he judges others harshly. And this is the nature that lives inside of every single one of us. And so Jesus gives a very sobering picture of what it looks like when we look to get lifted up by self-righteous religion and by calling out others. He says in Matthew 18, His master, after he called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had compassion on you? Who's your neighbor? Who should you love the way that God loved you? We stop looking for the boundaries and we, stop, we start looking for the heart of God and it will require you humility. And here's the promise of the morning. You live that humble love towards neighbors and enemies and you represent the heart of our God to this dying world. And here's the promise. God will lift you up. You don't have to settle your own debts. You don't have to serve your own vengeance. You don't have to put people in their place. You humbly love the way that God loves, and he will lift you up. That's a promise that you're challenged to put your faith in this morning. And now we come to the final proverb that James will share with us. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. So who are you? To judge another. This is the moment that we get to once again find the gospel in the book of James that is just so alive as you read it. This is a good news passage. It may take some time for it to soak into your heart as good news, but this news is the gospel. Because we live in an age where we need this as a constant reminder of the climate that we live in. Because all of you will leave here as you're a follower of Jesus, you're judged. If you are a person that wants to live in a paradoxical humility to be lifted up and reject all other temptations to lift yourself up, you'll be judged. Your views will be judged. Your actions will be judged. Your relationships will be judged. We we live in a world that is full of people who are looking from the outside in, and they're not doing the law of love, they're just judging it. But here's the good news. There's only one lawgiver that can save and destroy. One. We don't leave here worried about the court of public opinion. We're not worried about the judgment that this world will place on your commitment to Jesus. And we're also humbled by the reality that when we judge others, we are not judging with the power to save. There's only one judge that has the power to save, and that is the judge of the world who sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world that they would not perish. This is the difference between the righteous judgment of God and the evil judgment of man, because we always look for fault, and God always extends grace. The one judge who can save is the gospel good news this morning because we have come under the submission of the judge who offers salvation in all of our faults. There is one judge who can save. Now, here's the humbling challenge to your pride for that. The judge is saving all over the place. I mean, the stories in this sanctuary are stories of a righteous judge 
who could look at your life and see sin and failure, and he could condemn you, but by the power of his spirit, he won you into repentance through his kindness, and we are stories of the judge who saves. And the prideful challenge is that that's, always, that's, that's good news to you, but it's not always good news to others. I want you to think about your greatest enemy, and we believe in a judge that can save. I want you to think about your, the tribe across your aisle. There's a judge who will save them, who will pull them from the fallen nature of this world into life and life more abundant, into the kingdom of life. And the moment of humility that, that we all have to hear comes in another parable, of course. This will be our third and final parable of this morning. But it, it aligns with this question, who are you to judge? You want to talk about a story of great salvation, a story of redemption. It, it comes from maybe my favorite chapter in all of the Bible. It's Luke chapter 15. I love it because it's a story of lost things being found. And ever since I was a kid, I was really good at losing stuff. So I think of this chapter all the time. It's like you lose a coin. Isn't it great when you find it? Well, you lose a sheep. It's even better. It's like, well, that thing could have gone a lot farther than a coin. And you found it. It's like, holy moly, let's get everybody together and celebrate. And then it crescendos with, what if he lost a son? Do you imagine losing a child? you imagine a child, even worse than death, saying, you're dead to me, take what is owed to me, and I'm going to live my life as though you didn't exist? That is the state of the fallen world to the heart of God, best understood through the state of a, a lost child, through the heart of a father. And the story of redemption, as you know, for those of you who have ever heard the story of the prodigal son, is that there was this son who did just that. He said, you're dead to me. And then he moved off to a faraway country, and he spent all of his inheritance. But remember, draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. In his moment of weakness, he found humility to say, in my father's house, I could go back. And while he was still a far way off, the father came, and he grabbed him. He brought him in. I love that phrase, while well, he's still a far way off. Uh, I always think of the people in the back that doesn't have anything to do with where you stand with the Lord, but it's like the Lord loves those who are far off, and he saves them, and he, he meets them as they're coming to him. Those who are far off this morning, you feel so distant. It's like, draw near to God. He loves to come after you. Well, the reason this whole story should be shared now is because it's not the story of one son. It's the story of two. And there was another son who never left. He never took his inheritance early. He never violated his father's good name. And when the, the, the prodigal son returns, this is where the story really takes shape for us. Because when the prodigal son returns, the one who lost everything and had to come back with humility, the father lifts him up. The promise realized kill the fatted calf, get him a robe that shows him to be my favored son, and we're going to throw a party and a feast. This is the reality of the heart of God for anyone who returns to him. The father can save. But the problem for our pride is that once you've been here for a little while, some of those comeback stories aren't very exciting anymore. It's like, what? I didn't even like that person. Now they come to church here? This is what happens in the second son, Luke chapter 15. The second son wouldn't come into the feast. There's a party for a son that's been found, and the older son wouldn't come in. Stood outside with his arms crossed. He said, Lo, I've been with you these many years serving you. I never transgressed your commandments at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I make merry with my friends. Here's James speaking evil. But as soon as this son of yours came who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. I'm better than him. I've lived better than him. I've been better to you than he was. And you lifted him up. And the word comes alive this morning and says, who are you to judge? Who are you to judge who the gospel is for? Who are you to judge who the blood of Christ is for? 
Who are you to judge? For the power of the resurrection is for. It is for your enemies. It is for those you've written off. It's for those that you've done better than. And James says this morning, you want to be humble to be lifted up? You better celebrate with all of those that God is saving. There is a lawgiver who is able to save, and it is good. And this is what the father says to his son and what the Lord says to all of us. He said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, and he was lost and is found. It takes humility to celebrate with the angels in heaven for the redemption of the world. But the church sits in a corner with our tribes. We say, we're good, and they're bad. Who are you to judge? And I'll offer you three potential answers. Because this morning, we looked at two sinners, we looked at two servants, and we looked at two sons. And there is a call to draw near to God in each of those categories for your life. And there is a temptation to be a prideful sinner, a prideful servant, and a prideful son. But God says, here's the key, the paradox of the kingdom. Come humbly. As the sinner who says, have mercy on me. As the servant who has had a great debt paid off and is now willing to clear the debts of others. And as a son who was met a far way off and brought back with a feast of the Father for your attendance, who are you to judge? I'll end with a verse for us to think about as we sing this last song. Romans chapter 8, verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. It is Christ who dies. There is one who is able to save. May we not live underneath the judgment of people who are in the religious, self-righteous game of self-elevation. And may we not be those people. But may we look to the one lawgiver who can save and destroy and say, as a sinner, as a servant, as a son, as a daughter, I am humbled by the reality of God's love. Who are you? That's the question.